Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. And here we are, arriving at the end of our current series, our second series of top tens, looking at our top ten Formula One drivers across the teams. And today we're going to land on Tyrrell, and he is our list writer-in-chief. Uh, Kevin Turner joins us again. You put this list together. Evening, because it is a late evening as we record this one. Kev, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm all right. I've got a, a cider instead of a coffee for this uh, this podcast. But yeah, it's kind of sad to be getting to the end of a series. So obviously I've already started work on the third series. So don't worry. It's in it's in hand. <laughs> Lists in the will wo- go on. <laughs> in the words of what Alan Partridge never said, do I get a third series? Yes, you do. Uh, we will be back. Kevin will be back in, uh, we, we think sometime, we don't know, but we think sometime uh, around, yeah, maybe, maybe before pre-season testing next year with series number three. But well, we could go with when Max Verstappen wins the championship, but that could be like a couple of weeks. So I need a bit more time than that. So, so maybe somewhere after after the end of the uh, the season 
Um, maybe we can record them while everyone else is distracted by football, and then when that's finished, we can we can do them somewhere on that. Yeah, during the World Cup or something. Uh, And then uh, back on the Autosport podcast, frankly, it has been too long, which is an oversight of mine. Uh, Stefan, welcome back to the podcast. Stefan Mackley, Autosports. Deputy National Editor. So it's a bit of a a rarity for me to be talking about F1, but... uh, I couldn't pass up the opportunity when Kev said that basically I could try and disagree with him. So, um, you know, any, any chance to any chance to do that, I'm, I'm not going to let pass by. But maybe this is an audition for season three by the sounds of it. Absolutely. Well, look, before we get into it, we're talking Tyrrell. Um, can you sort of, sort of lay the table for us, really, Kev? What kind of man and driver was Ken Tyrrell? And as a team, what kind of team were they in terms of their culture and the way they went about their racing uh well kentir was a very very straight very honest guy sometimes the, you know they, they, they talked about him giving you a froth job when he was sort of very, very cross about something but you always knew where you stood um so i think you know he had incredible loyalty that people that were at the team stayed there for many many decades in some cases very loyal very highly respected even when they weren't Winning in their their, their later years, they weren't very competitive, largely through uh, a you know lack of funding and lack of resources. Um, they were still you know respected respected people in the in the paddock, and really he did, he he became probably we should make it clear it's Tyrrell as a constructor because uh, that's to keep it consistent with all the others. But actually, of course, he started off as a he was an entrant running other people's chassis. Uh, in F1 initially it was Matra and then when that deal fell over he ran a march for Jackie Stewart and and it was during that season he realised that uh, really he needed to build his own car because uh, Matra wanted him to run the V12 and they wanted to run a Cosworth engine and Matra weren't happy about that and then he went around all the F1 constructors going can you sell us a chassis and they went well so that you can put Jackie Stewart in it to beat all our guys now you're right and he was left with the March 701 which was pretty pants to be honest uh, so he went, well, I'm just going to have to go and build my own damn car then. And so from 19, the end of 1970 onwards, he suddenly found himself as a reluctant constructor. And by the time the team closed their doors at the end of 98, uh, when they were bought by British American Tobacco, 23 World Championship Grand Prix victories, two drivers' titles, a constructor's crown, and yes, in the second half of their life, they would have financial problems, but they still remain 10th on the all-time World Championship list, the wins list behind Benetton and ahead of BRM. Uh, For this top 10, we always consider the success the drivers had with this team, uh, the impact they had, and the circumstances around the time they were there. So let's get into it then. And number 10, he was there between 87 and 89. He started 45 times. He wouldn't win, and he wouldn't also get a podium. In 10th place, Jonathan Palmer. And as we're mentioning mentioning 10th place, who is he looking over his shoulder at who didn't make the top 10, Kev? So Didier Peroni is probably the 11th place person. Um, so he scored uh, two podiums in his 31 starts uh, for Tyrrell. But that was when Tyrrell were more competitive. And, and Palmer beats Peroni on this list really for... Well, actually, Peroni gets himself knocked off the list by getting absolutely thumped by somebody else that's higher up this list that we'll, that we'll get to later on. But Palmer himself gets in for two reasons. One is that he was the mainstay and the team leader during quite a difficult period for the team when you know they were struggling for competitiveness. And the other one is that sort of perhaps um, long-forgotten uh, Jim Clark trophy uh, victory that he took in 1987. So 
as F1 was sort of preparing to trans to transfer back from turbo engines to normally aspirated power, they had a sort of class B, if you like, um, so that teams could run that were running normally aspirated engines could fight for something. In 1987, um, they called uh, they called the drivers won the Jim Clark Trophy and the constructors won the the Colin Chapman Trophy, uh, and Palmer won it because the the Tyrrell that year the DGO 16 was actually a pretty good normally aspirated car um he beat his teammate philip strafe quite easily um and uh he, he actually scored some actual points as well he took a fourth place finish in australia fifth at monaco um had several sort of standout drives in 87 and then into 88 um and he was yeah he was highly rated at that point yeah he made it into auto courses top 10 on both occasions and he had some good career career momentum um that was rather uh, that was rather that rather disappeared in 1989 by uh, because of a driver that we'll get to later on. But yeah, Palmer for me, I thought he he there was a stronger case for him across his th- you know three seasons at the team uh, than there was uh, for Peroni. So yeah, he he slid in at, uh, at number ten. Stefan, what do you reckon? Would you have them uh, the other way around, or would you agree with uh, knocking Didier Peroni off the list in favour of Jonathan Palmer? I actually agree with Kev on this one, not least because on most race weekends I actually bump into Jonathan, um, so I don't think he'd take too kindly to <laughs> to be knocked outside the top ten. But um, I, I think it's quite a close one, actually. Um, I mean, Kev has mentioned um, Peroni getting thumped by one of his teammates who is further up on our list, but it should be noted in that, that season in 78, it was actually Peroni's you know, first season in Formula 1. Um, and he actually nearly got the same amount of points as Gilles Villeneuve that season. It's, those two always seemed linked, don't they, from from their time at Ferrari? But um, you know, apart from the win at the, the end of the season for Villeneuve, they, they would have had you know the same number of points. And I think in '79, you know, I think Peroni did start to you know get some decent results. He got two podium finishes, um, and you know, started to sort of show the ability that you know the reason that Ferrari signed him and obviously he went to, to Ligier for 1980 as well. And with Jonathan obviously winning the Jim Clark Trophy, I mean, I think Kev will probably agree there weren't that many other cars that were normally aspirated at the time and those that were, weren't were perhaps at the same level as, as Tyrrell. So it was very much Jonathan against his, his teammate, Philip Streif. Um, who he did, you know, he he did comprehensively beat. It has to be said, but as well, Jonathan also done, you know, quite a few races, um, you know, before he joined Tyrrell with with Ram and Zaxby. Although most of them ended with with the retirement, I think, and he was usually towards the the back of the grid. So so yeah, a, a close one, I think. But I think, as Kev says, because Jonathan was there at quite a difficult time um, in Tyrrell's history and did manage to get some um, overall points as well. You know, in a in a car that perhaps wasn't as quick as a lot of the others, you know, probably mm. does does earn him a spot in the top ten. And he had a really interesting route into motorsport. He wasn't, you know, a kind of a karting kid that did nothing else apart from work his way up the ladder. And you've spoken to him over the years about that as well. He's a really interesting guy to talk about his entry into to, to motorsport, right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, um, you know, he, he trained as a, a doctor, and I think while he was, you know, coming up through the you know the junior ladders of British Formula Three, etc. Et he, um, you know, he would work as a GP during the week, um, and I know we had him on a podcast um, last year, and he was, you know, telling us about, you know, his memories in British motorsport and coming up the ladder, and you know, some sort of really good stories. So, um, yeah, you know, he'd, 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 in to a certain extent, you know, he'd come up sort of the hard way, really, and you know, had to earn earn his spot, you know, on the F1 grid. And like I said, you know, spent a few years with Ram and um, Zach Speed you know, struggling for results, but 
once he got into the Tyrrell, you know, he sort of was able to show, you know, sort of his talent in not that competitive machinery, really. All right, let's move on. Ninth place, he was there. A more contemporary name here. 1995 to 1997. He started 50 times. He wouldn't win and he wouldn't be on the podium. He is Mika Salo, Kev, in ninth place. Yeah, so a uh, sort of slightly more modern version <laughs> of Jonathan Palmer in that sense, in that uh, obviously Tyrrell was well past its its best. But actually, it quite often produced reasonable chassis, but it didn't have... Uh, it didn't ha- usually have a particularly powerful engine and of course because of their lack of facilities relative to the top teams they did sort of eventually drop behind in the aerodynamics race as well um, but yeah so um, Solo quickly um, I mean he made a few mistakes in 95 but he uh, yeah, he quickly got one over um, Ukio Katayama which probably people forget actually Katayama was, was pretty good you know he'd outpaced Mark Blundell um, the year before, he'd actually, you know, was rated in, in, you know, in seventh in auto courses driver ratings the year before. So for Salo to get on top of him that quickly was, you know, was no no mean feat. Very highly rated with what he did in uh, Salo in 1996. He scored points, which remember in those days only awarded the top six as well um, in Italy, Japan, Australia, and and he he was he was actually hanging on to the leading packer in San Marino as well um, before he had engine problems. So yeah. Um, always, always dragged. I think he's one of those good drivers. If you if you had a sort of a middling to back end car, I think Mikasala was a good driver to have in there to pull out some results. And of course, in '97 when the the car really wasn't very competitive, at all, it was one of the slowest in the field. You know, he did manage to get that sort of famous fifth place in the Wet Monaco Grand Prix when the team ran him non-stop, which I think actually was a a Ken Tyrrell idea. Um, and he also had a pretty strong teammate. Um, it was incredible, actually, that Tyrrell had Salo and Jos Verstappen, another sort of good midfield battler uh, at that time. And, and Salo had the edge over him. So compared well to his teammates, which we just said in previous episodes, that's obviously got to count for something, uh, particularly in these sort of middle to back end teams when it's sometimes difficult to see the wood for the trees. Um, and was you know, generally, I think, probably one of the team's you know, biggest assets while he was there. And Stefan, what do you make of Kev putting Mika Salo in ninth place on the list? Uh, yeah, again, um, it, it's, it's hard to, to disagree, really. And, um, you know, I have to be honest, Salo, you know, he kind of goes under the radar a bit. I think, you know, he's not sort of the driver who comes to the top of many people's list for, you know, a variety of, you know, questions, really. Um, but, I mean, he did, you know, 50 races, um, you know, for Tyrrell and, you know, the majority of his career with, with the team over three seasons. Um, and as Kev says, you know, he did he did impress. I mean, after 1994, where... Katiyama and um, Mark Blundell scored points. After that, Salah was the only driver to score points for the team, and they carried on for another four years. And yes, obviously the the cars they produced weren't the best, and you know the form sort of quickly went away. But you know, there's clearly some you know good performances that you know he'd managed to put in. And as Kev mentioned, that the one at Monaco in '97, I think I might be wrong, but I think Mike Gascoigne might have come up with the the strategy for that one for the for the basically the, the non-stop wasn't it um, but it's, it's quite interesting to see pictures from that race because he I think he'd lost one of his um, front wing plates on the on the front wing um, but obviously it didn't really detract from the performance of the, the car at the time <laughs> in the wet around Monaco but um, yeah you know w- one of those drivers who just you know put in a, a shift really for a couple of years obviously got on well with the team otherwise he wouldn't have stayed there and um, and I think more importantly, you know, beat some 
you know, pretty handy teammates. You know, beat Jos Verstappen, uh, Katayama, who again, you know, had shown you know a decent turn of pace while you know he'd spent a couple of years at, at Tyrrell. So um, yeah, very deserving of a, a place in the top ten, I think. Let's move on. If that's all right, I'm going to do the next two together because they are of the same era. And it might be where you two fall out for the first time. Or maybe there's agreement. In eighth place, we'll do seven and eight together. In eighth place, um, he was there in 84 to 85. He started 20 times, no wins, and the record books say zero podiums. He is Stefan Beloff. In seventh place on Kevin's list, uh, he was there from 84 to 86, started... Almost twice as many as Stefan Beloff, 38 times. Didn't win for Tyrrell, and the record books say zero podiums. These are about as close as they get on your list, Kev. Was it a hard one separating these two? Oh, this is one of the hardest ones in all of both series. (laughs) I changed them. At one stage, uh, I even thought about giving them equal position. No. But really, that's just a cop-out, isn't it? Massive (laughs) cop-out. Can't be Uh, done. And that would be be worse than making a decision. (laughs) So so the easy decision would have been to put Ben off ahead. You know, a lot of people rate him as a, a, a lost world champion. Uh, everyone remembers that sort of sensational 1984 Monaco Grand Prix when you know, he was charging you through in the you know appalling conditions and that's the race obviously where Ayrton Senna, also a rookie driving for, for Tolman, was catching Alain Prost and of course Beloff was catching Senna and had the race gone to its full conclusion, uh, I think Beloff would have what you know would had the pace to win although there's this, I do have a there's a sneaking feeling in the back of my mind that Beloff and Senna running together in those conditions Prost would have ended up winning because they'd have crashed into each other but maybe that's unfair certainly Beloff had the pace to to win that day and that's that's the famous that's the famous race for him really um but the reason I've put them put Brundle ahead the two reasons really. one is I think Martin people forget Maybe because he's you know been a TV pundit for so long and he had a long F1 career. But I think people forget how good he really was, um, particularly in those early days. You know, highly rated when he came up. Sen arrival in F3 came up alongside Beloff, and it was pretty marginal in qualifying. Beloff just had an edge, but there were plenty of days where Martin was was quicker. It was Martin that took took points, which he then lost uh, because obviously Tyrrell was thrown out. Uh, for the 84 season for quite dubious reasons, which is probably worthy of a podcast of its own. But that both of them lost all their results from 1984. So none of these results that we're talking about appear if you're looking at history, you think, well, they're just making it up. Um, but he actually scored points on his debut in Brazil. Uh, he was closer to Beloff than is remembered. He also does have a race um, that... Uh, that kind of stands comparison with Monaco at Detroit. Uh, shortly afterwards, he started 11th. He was five spots ahead of Beloff in qualifying and he moved forward and he actually was catching Nelson Piquet, Brab- Nelson Piquet's Brabham late on and he only fell 0.8 seconds short of, of, of catching the Brabham. Uh, depending on who you talk to, you know, but Martin needed one more lap to win or actually Piquet had it well under control and was uh, was just cruising to the finish. But either way, it was still a very impressive uh, impressive drive, another one that was lost to history books. So had they not lost all their points, Brundle actually would have scored more in 84. Beloff had the upper hand in pace at the start of 85. But then the, the final reason that, that Brundle was ahead is longevity, um, which sounds a bit harsh given that the reason that Beloff wasn't at Tyrrell for all of 85 is that yeah, he was killed in a, a Group C accident at Spa. 
which sadly was, you know, you know, very much his, I think, his mistake trying to overtake Jackie X into Eau Rouge. Uh, Brundle had to, you know, kind of lead the team after that. He outqualified the drivers that came in, Van Capelli and, and Philip Strafe again. Um, and yeah, and he was there for three seasons. So in the end, I thought the longevity um, just edged him back past Beloff, even though Beloff was arguably just that fraction quicker when they were actually together. Yeah, Beloff, a really quick driver in eighth and Brundle ahead. So Stefan, your verdict. Uh, I mean, I, I disagree for the, the reasons that Kevin has just said for the fact that, you know, he... T- t- to me, you know, it's all about the the raw speed and the talent. You know, I appreciate the longevity, but, you know, as Kev said, you know, Beloff was um, out-qualified Brundle, you know, marginally, but he did. Um, you know, he's got more memorable races, I think, that, you know, the, the Monaco one in particular. Um, and for me as well, I think it's more the fact that, you know, we look at their um, careers in 85 and obviously if Belloff hadn't been killed you know it's a case of you know what if what would have happened and I think it's fair to say that he'd certainly had a lot of um, interest from Ferrari um, you know who obviously for whatever reason preferred him over over Brundle um, and I think you know that has to count for something and as well you know in many ways I think Belloff's career in sports cars was in a way four years sort of ahead of what Brundle would eventually go on to do and you know the success he had there because you know obviously with Porsche and Derek Bell you know uh, Belloff you know had that success I know obviously we're just looking sort of at Tyrrell but I think considering it was taking place at the same time in the same year that he obviously was was having his F1 career it's 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 worth considering as well you know just how how good he was you know I mean he's his record around the uh, you know the the Norge life stood for was it 30, more than thirty years? I think he got beaten in two thousand and eighteen. You know, obviously there's a, there's a number of reasons for that, but I think it just goes to show just how much raw talent and speed that he did have. And um, oh, Kev, I think disagrees again. Well, no, no, I, I you know, I, I think that yeah, you know, most people would say he probably did have more ability, but I think you've got to temper that as well. And I wonder if Beloff is just one of these drivers who's always going to have a big accident. I mean, that Nürburgring record you mentioned, that was in that was in qualifying. In race day, he put the car on its roof and rolled it into a ball uh, when him and Derek Bell should have won the race easily. So, uh, you know, even the, you know, it's very harsh because obviously it's a fatal accident. But ultimately, the, the spa crash was a misjudgment on his part. So, you know, would he have rounded off those edges if he'd survived that? Um, or would he have always been a little bit, a little bit wild. You like to think, obviously, that it's normally easier to calm down an incredibly rapid driver than uh, than speed up a <laughs> you know a slow and consistent yeah. one. Um, I think most most people would, would agree with that. But for me, yeah, we we just never got to see the finished article with Beloff, did we? Uh, yeah, he's one of it's one of motorsports' great uh, sort of great what ifs, I guess, and a great name as well. And of course, another sort of lost German talent. You know, you forget that uh, you forget that you know Wolfgang von Trips and Stefan Beloff were sort of two two drivers that, in different ways, could have could have delivered uh, wins and titles for for Germany before uh, yeah before Mark Schumacher came along and um, almost single handedly lift, lifted Germany further up the list uh, of Grand Prix winners. It's really interesting. I think we had this a similar debate. I think it was the Ligier podcast, and I forget the driver we were talking about. But it's that whole when you lose the issue around losing a driver too soon um, because of a crash, and it's like you, you you have to try and make these lists on the performance with the team. But it's human nature, absolutely human nature, with any racing driver who we lose to think, oh, what what would they to just do that kind of mental 
uh, uh, yeah, to a play. What would they have done? I think the the heart chooses Belloff and maybe their head, the rationale that says, well, you know, logically, Brundle did do more at Tyrrell. But uh, honestly, this was one of the this was one of the hardest combinations. I completely, um, I'm uh, well. Let's put it this way: I'm I'm completely unsurprised that that Stefan has uh, got them the other way around. Oh, I've got to right. disagree we- with you about something, haven't I? I can't just. <laughs> I mean, we've got, we're three we're three in. I've got to, you know, I can't just be like, yeah, I agree with Kev. Yeah, fa- okay. fa- fair enough. <laughs> Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. I will give you, I will give you the chance to disagree on the next two, because again, the next two are really close, so I'll, I'll give those two together, and we can debate them as they come in, in fifth and sixth place. In sixth place, his Tyrrell years were 89 to 90, he started 23 times, he wouldn't win, but he would get two podiums. He is jean Lazy in sixth, and fifth on the list, two stints, 81 to 83 and 89, he would start a lot of races, 46 races for Tyrrell, and he would get two wins. So now we're talking about a Tyrrell winner, and he'd get four podiums. He is Michele Alboreto. All right, Kev, how is how are these two close? We're talking about a double winner for the team, and, and John Alesi, who only got two podiums, but these are close. Yeah, they are close. I don't think they're as... For me, they're not as close as, as Belloff and Brundle. Um, I think... The, it's, it actually, it's a little bit of a heart and head situation again because, you know, Lacey, when he came in, remember, obviously, fourth place on his Grand Prix debut. And then, you know, Phoenix 1990, you can't talk about Lacey until without talking about that. Um, you know, the fight with Senna when when, when Senna went past and, and uh, naively left a Tyrrell's width on his left hand side going to the next left hander and Lacey filled it. Um, and Senna had to pass him again. It was a great fighting, feisty drive, uh, and he made a really big, big impact. It was part of uh, Tyrrell's last hurrah. Um, I don't think Alacy is entirely uh, should entirely be credited with that because Harvey Postlethwaite, the the O one eight and O one nine chassis were good cars. You know, they already Alberto himself in his few races in eighty nine had already shown that O one eight was was a good car. So I think Alacy. Yeah, it was a great talent when he came in, but I think it was a, a perfect car, really. Uh, really agile, great car to throw around. You could see him working. Not the most powerful car, but it's just something that a, a young, feisty sort of rookie could really attack with. And it, it made for some great... It did make it did make for some great television at times and great watching. Um, mm. But, yeah, as you say, Alboreto in the end, they're quite similar in that they're both inexperienced when they come in. Um, they both ultimately blow away their teammates. Alberto had a not great first season um, against Eddie Cheever. I'd suggest he perhaps had a perhaps a tougher benchmark than, than Alacy did. Um, but then he was you know quicker than Brian Henson and Danny Sullivan after that. Now, I did look at the super times as well, which is the raw pace. And the, the Tyrrells in 82 and 83 were 3% and 4.5% off the pace, whereas the 1990 Tyrrell was only 1.7%. So it was a lot closer. Now, the caveat to that is obviously we're in the turbo era in the 80s where they turned the wick up in qualifying. 
uh, and the, the normally aspirated cars were, were were more competitive in the races. So it's it's very difficult to compare the two. But ultimately, Alberto is the guy that. You know, he scored two wins. They were well taken wins. The one in Caesar's Palace in particular was done on you know, was done on performance. He was a little bit more fortunate perhaps um uh, a year later for his for his uh, his second win in Detroit. Um but he got more podiums, more wins, he started more races, um and uh, they both made mistakes. Uh Alace is kind of the fever option, but I think Alberto just delivered a little bit more uh for Tyrrell. So that's that's why, you know, he's a Tyrrell winner, Alacy isn't um, although I would, I would, I would perhaps suggest that Lacey never looked better than when he was in a Tyrrell. Uh, just tell us, uh, it was a really great stat you gave us at the beginning of that that piece that uh, Jean Lacey scored points. Of course, the the old point structure as well, not down to tenth place on his F one debut. Uh, where did he come into Formula One from, and and how highly rated was Jean Lacey oh, when well, he came he, into F one? He was, you know, F three thousand champion in nineteen eighty nine. So he was, you know, he was a coming guy. I think probably in eighty nine ninety, he was probably the guy that everyone would have said this this driver is a future world champion. Obviously, a year or so later, a certain Mark Schumacher rocked up and everyone went, oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Who was, Schumacher was just a much more complete driver than Lace. I think probably even Jean would, would, would accept that. Um, uh, yeah, Lace just had a typical sort of rookie season or rookie season, season and a half. Some brilliant, some brilliant performances. Um, actually, Monza, Monza in 1990 sums it up quite quite nicely. I was watching it early on. Both there's two starts because as you remember, that's the race where Derek White had that horrendous crash coming out of Parabolic. On both starts from fifth on the grid, he he jumps past uh, Nigel Mansell's Ferrari and then does does a number on Alain Prost on the first lap to run third. And actually, uh, he's all over the McLaren Hondas uh, as well. And he does it both times. Uh, but then on the second thing, he, the second time, lap, going on to lap five, coming up behind Berger, he just drops it and throws it into the gravel and it's game over. So he scores 13 points in his first four Grand Prix of 1990 and then doesn't score any more points. Uh, whereas if you look at uh, um, Alberto in 82, you know, he's consistently backing, you know, it's not just that win. You know, he backs it up with quite a few other good scores and podiums and things like that. So it's just... I think it's just a more consistent and more solid performance from Alboreto than Alacy. Um but I, but Alacy, it was great to have him on the grid in that car. It was, yeah, it was great to watch. I've been patently waiting, letting Kev, Kev finish <laughs> yeah. before he had to say. But um, I, I see what I see what he's saying, but I, I disagree. I, uh, you see, it's 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 the it's the thing, isn't it? Where it's the the fever and the you know the the raw talent and the speed and the excitement versus the you know consistent results, point scoring. That kind of thing. I mean, I think it's interesting because I, I agree with Kevin in the sense of they, they're, they're both very similar when they sort of join Tyrrells. You know, it's their first seasons in, in Formula One. I mean, what I would say is about Alberetto in, um, he joins in 1981 and he, you know, he doesn't score any points. Um, and Eddie Cheever is his teammate and has some F1 experience. But it's not a lot. I mean, he he did he did a full season with a seller, and basically he I think he finished one race, and the rest were either retirements or he didn't qualify. So it's not like he's going up against a teammate who has you know a vast amount of experience. But in eighty one, Chiva scores ten points. So clearly the you know the car at that point has a you know an ability to to get in the point scoring positions. Fast forward you know nearly ten years, and you've got a Lacey coming in in eighty nine points on his debut in France and then there is another um, 
uh, two further points finishes that year for the remainder of the season. So already he's you know he's coming to Formula One and he's he's made his mark. I think the most telling thing though is that in '89 Alberetto actually rejoins Tyrrell for a few races and scores two points finishes. He actually gets a podium in in Mexico. So, but obviously he'd already spent the time with Tyrrell before and the five years with Ferrari where, you know, he got several wins and came close to winning the championship. But then obviously for Alatis to then come in in his first, you know, first season in, you know, half season in the championship and to basically sort of be matching Alberetto's performance to me just says, you know, here's a driver who clearly, you know, belongs in Formula One. And... (laughs) I, it, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because obviously we looked we looked to nineteen ninety and you know the first four races and it's it's incredible, isn't it? You know he gets two podiums, Phoenix where you know he battles Senna and then Monaco where he you know finishes again second to Senna, and then after that it's sort of a typical rookie performance where you know there are crashes. I mean he crashed at Canada and split uh, Alessandro Nanini's Bennett on in half. Um, he <laughs> crashed at Monza, like Kev said. I think he got taken out at Hareth as well. He he got a puncture going into the first corner, and you know there's there's other mistakes as well. I mean, I'm not sure if during that part of the season he obviously there was um, a push for his services. He you know famously obviously signed the contract with Williams, and then Ferrari came knocking. And, you know, obviously there was that gun. I think Tyrrell still wanted to keep him. Kev, Kev probably knows that better than me, whether they wanted to try and actually... Whether that was ever feasible, I don't know. But um, I think by that point of the season, I think almost to a certain extent, his eye perhaps wasn't on the ball as much as it should have been because he was looking elsewhere for his options for 1991. I think as well, obviously, you've, you've, you've got to look at the development of the car as well. Um, you know, um, his teammate for the season was, uh, you know, Nakajima. You know, who he wasn't a slouch. You know, he'd obviously been in Formula One for a couple of years, um, but he blew him away. And during the course of the season, you know, Nakajima only got in the points three times. Um, so I think you know all the all these you know permutations put together. I think for me, Lacey edges it. I think looking at Alberetto's time in '82 when he won at Caesar's Palace for the final race of the season. I mean, he was the 11th different winner that year. I mean, if we had that now in Formula 1, social media would lose its mind. <laughs> it's just, you know, 11, 11, 11 different winners in a season. I mean, you know, it's. I agree with Kev that he, he earned that win on performance, but I also think that it just showed... I know we look at the super times, but, you know, for 11 different people to be winning that year, I think shows that there was a lot going on with the technical regulations, track-specific for certain cars... Um, and you know, for me, that was why he won in '83 as well in Detroit. It was very much a, you know, a, a track that suited the Tyrrell chassis. Um, and apart from that win, he got one points finished for the rest of the year. Um, so, I mean, I, I understand where Kev's coming from, but for me, I think you know, um, a Lacey just edges it. But I agree in the sense of you know, he probably never looked better than in that Tyrrell. And then, <laughs> you know, we went, went to Ferrari and, and, you know, he's, it just never happened, did it? I do think Stefan actually touched on a really interesting point there, which makes this so difficult, which is I do think the 82 and 83 Tyrrells were worse relative to the opposition compared to the 89-90 Tyrrells, but they were up against less reliable and less consistent opposition. So there were probably op- opportunities, uh, as Stefan says, there were some really random races in those in the early 80s where somebody doing a good job could 
maybe get a win or a podium. Whereas the yeah, we see it now in a, in you know, an extreme fashion. Yeah, the top teams are incredibly reliable and apart from Ferrari good at strategy, so they tend to finish in the right places. Um whereas it was a it was really random in the early eighties and it was maybe a little bit random in the late eighties and early nineties. So I think overall the performance of a Lacey's car was better, but he probably had fewer chances to win. So it, it really is, uh, it, it really is, is quite tricky. But um, just, yeah, just, oh, that's fine. I'm going to have Alberto ahead, and you can have just, a Lacey ahead. Just, just, I mean, just just on the on the chassis, you know, on the Tyrrell in 1990. I mean, I think the question is, you know, how good actually was it? You know, if you'd put a, a Mansell or a Senna or a Prost in there, I mean, would it have won races? You know, what 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 was actually achievable? Do you think that? Alessi was almost getting the best out of the car because to me I think he was I think obviously obviously a Senna and a Prost and a Mansell wouldn't have thrown it off in you know Monza for example on lap 5 they would have known the limitations of the car but I also think to a certain extent Alessi was pushing it to the absolute limit so I think the, the, the question is you know just how much performance was he getting out of that car at the time and I think it was well, quite pretty much the, to the limit I think in raw performance terms Yes, that's probably fair. Although, of course, Alain Prost actually did compare pretty pretty well alongside uh, alongside Lacey when they were at Ferrari. Everyone thinks that Lacey exciting talent, but you know Prost people underestimate his raw speed. But anyway, that's a that's a different conversation. But yeah, he but he finished ninth in the World Championship. He finished behind both Benettons and both William. Okay, so he finished behind both McLarens and both Ferraris. That's fair enough. But I, I feel like one of the drivers you've just known there would probably be, have been up in, you know, fifth or sixth in the championship uh, in terms of scoring points, which, you know, if you're if you're a team trying to get, you know, get back to the front and all the rest of it is, is quite important. But, um, you know, there were just a few too many. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a Lacey's career in a nutshell, right? Not not quite fulfilling the speed that was there. You know, he won one Grand Prix, whereas in 89, 90, you just said this guy's going to surely be a multiple world champion. So how much of it was bad luck and, you know, being in the wrong car at the wrong time and how much of it was just him not being quite the complete package? And I guess that we maybe should do a Jean Lacey podcast, actually. We'll get him on. I know he's friends with Charles Bradley, isn't he? We could, we could get him on the podcast and see if he could tell us about his strengths and weaknesses as an F1 driver. It's, I think F one drivers are always a little more keen to talk about their strengths than. Oh, I don't know what you mean, Martin. You, should, <laughs> you, you clearly met a racing driver. I, I think, <laughs> I think one of Alessi's weaknesses was just his bad luck. I mean, obviously, we've just had the Italian Grand Prix, and social media has been full of you know lots of Grand Prix from the past, and you know it's <laughs> during the nineties when he was in, in a Ferrari, just the, the man just could not you know, for love nor money, you know, get any look at Monza. You know, I mean, the, 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 I always laugh at the, the 1995 one where Ferrari are cruising to a 1-2 and Alessi's camera falls off, smashes into Berger's suspension, wipes him out, and then seven laps from the end, I think it was a, was it a wheel-bearing failure for, for Alessi? Forces him in when he's got a, you know, he, he was cruising to the win, so... So yeah, I think maybe that was one of his weaknesses. <laughs> Just bad. Well, luck. we could. I have done a list of top ten one-hit wonders, uh, and part of the rating of that is people that should have won more than one. Uh, mm. and, and almost just on that criteria alone you'd put you put you put Jean in. I mean he should have he should have won a half dozen races, that's that's for sure. Um but um 
I feel like we should throw it back to Martin now, otherwise we've turned it into a Jean Lacey podcast and he's only actually at number six in my list. We'll leave them in that order for now, uh, for uh, for Jean in sixth, Michele Alboreto in fifth, because I'm going to go and do it again. I'm going to give you two more drivers to uh, discuss, um, not just because they're two French drivers, um, obviously, but because there are some similarities here. There's a good debate to be had here in uh, fourth place. In fourth place is a double, another double stinter. 1972, and then a return from 74 to 78. He started 80 times for the team. Uh, he won once, but would get 17 podiums. In fourth place, Kev has put Patrick Depayer. In third place, he would do just one stint with the team, 71 to 73, but... He had his success with this team. He started 37 times, the majority of his Grand Prix starts. His Grand Prix win would come with this team, and his 13 podiums that he would get in Grand Prix would come with this team. He is Francois Sever. So, that's third and fourth, Kev. How difficult was it to put these two in those positions? Yeah, this this was another this was another tricky one. So, I've just realised in the previous two, I've, I've made a case for, um, you know, sort of rational... A logical thinking over over an emotional fever, and, and this one's the other yourself. way around, isn't it? Um, so <laughs> there we go. That's, that's my that's way of consistent. thinking, Kev. Well, I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's how we're, you we're broken you. It's, it's how close they are as well as to how you, how you ate them, right? So, definitely, actually, that with the, both the Lige podcast that we did with Marcus Simmons and then researching for this one, a really a good, a better Grand Prix driver than I'd perhaps previously uh, thought that he was. Um, and uh, you said that it's, it was two stints there, but really it's only a couple of Grand Prix in 72. And he was brought in in 1974 really as a kind of a, you know, the whole idea was that Sever, you know, they're linked, inextricably linked because Depay wouldn't be on this list if Sever hadn't been killed because he would have led the team uh, in 1974 with uh, Jody Schechter alongside him because he'd already been lined up to replace Jackie Stewart when he, re- you know, sort of secretly told Ken Tyrrell that, that, that he was going to retire at the end of 73. So, um, you know, Depay was thrown in with very little experience. And as you probably expect, uh, Schechter, you know, Schechter did have, have the edge um, until they got to the six-wheeler. And I think you have to factor this in as well, because the P34, OK, only won one World Championship Grand Prix, but actually it's a, it's a cool car. If you're doing the, if we're doing a list of the top Tyrrells, it's probably going to be second or third, right? Because it's, it's, it's a fever one. Um, not only did he did he outpace Schechter in the, that car in 76, which got him th- ranked third in the auto course rate, uh, ratings for 1976 behind just Nicky Lauda uh, and James Hunt. So if you remember, obviously the film Rush, he, he's the he, he's third um, in their ratings. And then in 77, Ronnie Peterson joins Tyrrell, highly rated, Grand Prix winner with the Lotus. Some people thought he was the quickest driver in the world. Depay outqualified him 9-8 in the, and outscored him 20 points to 7. Um he then finally he really should have won a Grand Prix before then. You know, he was un- unlucky in South Africa in, in 78 as well. Um, he finally gets a win um, in 008 in, uh, in Monaco in 1978. So he's fifth in the driver's standings um, before he, he heads off to Ligier. Um, so a really solid, you know, 80, as you say, 80 starts, a win. It should have been probably two or three, 17 podiums. Uh, and he's actually the second highest scorer 
in Tyrrell Sassy. There's only one other driver that we may or may not get to shortly. And um, he just passed Schechter. He, he's behind Schechter because on every every metri- other metric, Schechter's ahead. So you can probably guess that he's going to be further up this list. But um, uh, the reason I, I've done a really good, I've done a really good case for Shet- for Depay eleven. I've got to now try and remember my my Sever case. You've, so the you've reason done my work's for me. Yeah, I've done. What order are we doing? So. So that's what gets him ahead of Alberto and Alacy, if you like. Let's 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 look at it that way. The reason that Sever is is third, and I did this was close. In the end, I just thought he'd got to such a good level, even before he was killed. If you take out uh, uh, Jackie Stewart, who you know, I think most people would agree is one. You know, you're talking top five, top ten F1 drivers of all time. If you took him out, Sever is a seven times winner for for Tyrrell. Um, as it is, he did have a victory. He took thirteen podiums. He was also a significant contributor to the only constructors title um, that they that they scored um, in 1971 and in 1973 in, in a tricky car. The 006, I'm not convinced, was was the greatest Tyrrell. Um, you know, there were races where you know he's really showed his progress. You know, when he first joined, he was quite a long way off Stuart, and by 72, 73, was he was you know, genuinely able to, to keep up with him. And, and there were a couple of races, you know, Zandvoort and Nürburgring in particular, I think. Um, do I mean Zandvoort? Might mean Zolder. Where, um, uh, you know, Stuart felt that, that, that Sever was as quick as him. So really came on, progressed. Um, and the two reasons he he ultimately ends up ahead of Depay, one is, you know, it is results. You know, he, his percentage, his strike rate for podiums and things is, is better. Um, and he contributes to that championship, and also it's his relationship within the team. I'm not convinced that any that Ken Tyrrell ever thought that Depay was probably going to be, you know, a world champion. Whereas he, you know, he was confident enough. He was a good talent spotter. You know, he felt confident enough to have Sever as, as his number one. Jackie Stewart thought that he was going to be, um, yeah, Sever was going to be a, a world champion in the future. Um, so it, that just got him ahead. Really, he was the Tyrrell family was very much like that. And Francois was part of that, um, and he, he it's it's you know it's a tragedy. Obviously, they didn't get to take up that that yeah you know, that mantle. Would he have won a world world championship uh, given Tyrrell's performance? I think probably seventy four would have been his one chance, and then the team fell away. So maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. But uh, I think he just got to a, a higher level than than perhaps Depay managed. Um, so on this one, I've gone for the uh, for sort of the ability over the perhaps the longevity. Yeah, he was a bit of a blind spot for me coming into this podcast when you sent me the lists. I went away and uh, watched some uh, some classic YouTube stuff and, and definitely it filled in a gap, and a, a gap in my knowledge because he just wasn't particularly on my radar, but I'm not the expert that you guys are of this era of Grand Prix racing. Oh, I can confirm to the audience as well, we have mentioned Jody Schechter. He is on the way. <laughs> You won't be surprised to hear. But what position? We'll keep listening to find out. Right, Stefan, so we've done another two together. What's your take on those two in the positions Kev put them? I mean, it's another great what-if, isn't it, about Sever and, you know, whether he would have won the World Championship. Um, I mean, he was sort of the heir apparent, wasn't he, to to Stuart? I mean, he followed him home for a number of races, you know, playing the the number two role. Would he have beaten Stuart in some of those races? I mean, I'm I'm not 100% sure. Probably not, um, you know, if he'd have been allowed to. But, you know, obviously he'd spent, you know, several years alongside Stuart Tyrrell and, and very much sort of learnt his trade. You know, who better to learn from, you know, in, in that era, really? Um, 
you know, with that being said, it, it, it took, you know, for me, it took until the 73 season for him to really sort of show his ability. I mean, his first season with Terrell was, you know, not great, to be honest. You know, it was it was quite struggling. Um, you know, there were occasional podiums in 71 and 72, but, you know, nothing really to sort of, you know, get too excited about. Obviously, he got the, the win in 71 at um, Watkins Glen as well to, to end the season and, and third in the standings. Uh, yeah, I, it's difficult because actually, you know, I, I had actually put him number four on my list. But listening to Kev, I mean, you know, I really can sort of see, you know, b- both ways really to put him at number three and, and Depay at number number four. Um, I mean, Kev touched on it just sort of before the end, just as he sort of finished wrapping up his, his points, really. And the fact that Severe was obviously at Tyrrell when, you know, they were the team to beat, you know, Stewart had the wins and the championships and I think it's fair to say that after 74 the Tyrrell the six wheeler in particular you know wasn't the fastest car it probably was quite a handful and it was certainly something that you know Schechter and Depayer had never come across before and you know the same with the engineers so I think you know during those seasons it would have been a learning curve for all of them um, so I don't think it's it's fair to you know if Depayer had been in the car I mean, I think the best way to look at it, you know, if Depay had been in the team in Sever's place alongside Stuart for those years, what would the result have been? And I don't think it would have been any different. And I think what we're judging it on is what could Sever have gone on to achieve for me. And it's again, it comes back to the what if, doesn't it? It's it's sort of, you know, we've seen what Depay did in his career, albeit in a Tyrrell that perhaps wasn't as good as those in the past. But for Sever, it was, you know, could he have taken that next step? Could he have led a team? And I'm just not 100% sure that he could have. Um, I mean, to be honest, you know, I'll, I've throughout the entire, you know, this this discussion, you know, I've always gone for the, the fever pick and the, the driver, you know, with the, the untapped talent. So I guess by that virtue, I've got to agree with Kev um, and, and put him third. But I think it's a tricky one. I really think it's it's, you know, it's... It's not easy to to work out, really. Mm. I think one okay. of the things I like about this is is to because I think I think um, fans of certain age probably will think of Francois Sever. You know, Jackie Stewart's talked about him quite a lot, whereas I don't think people do with with Patrick Depaille as much. And I think it's it's kind of nice in both the Ligier one and this one to just show how. And of course, he was another driver killed. You know, before okay, later on, relatively in his career, was he killed in a testing accident in Alfa Romeo? Uh, and did his own chances in of the 79 title by going hang gliding when he was just mm. really getting going at Ligier. So, yeah, I, I think both, yeah, interesting, very interesting character. May, may be too much of a maverick to be quite the, the finished article, but I think in that period between Stewart and Prost, you could probably get away with it and still win the odd championship in races. Like Nicky Lauda was the, the full package during that period, but there were quite a few other drivers that they, yeah, that's why we talk about characters and all the rest of it. And I think they were both they were both that. So um yeah, it just it's not nice to have them together together on this list, I think. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Well, here we go. Second place then. He was there from 74 to 76. 
you won't be surprised to hear who he is. He started 45 times. He won four times. He had 14 podiums. And yes, the events of Watkins Glen did uh, put him uh, front and centre in the team. He is Jody Schechter. Kev, you've put him in second place. As we get to the you know, sharp end of the list and you look at drivers, you know you always have to think about the driver and the team and were they the perfect match? Was it the right driver in the right team? Did those two cultures come together to, so that the team could make the driver everything that he could possibly be? That's the magic, the stardust that happens sometimes in Formula One. Jody Schechter in second place. Is that the place that you think he's always destined to be or, or could he have been? The number one on this list. No, I think he was always going to no. be. He was always going to be. The number one is the, the number one is two two number that's, one. It's yeah, exactly. It's more. It's that's more uh, about the number one driver than the number two. Yeah, than, than anything okay. about Jody okay. Schechter. But I mean, I think to Schechter's credit, you know, he he wasn't meant to be the team leader. You know, he had, he'd only done five, five world championship races with McLaren, which included his uh, infamous. Uh, Silverstone multi-car shunt-triggering spin at Woodcote <laughs> in the M23. Uh, so it wasn't like he was, uh, you know, he was suddenly thrust into this team leader role when obviously Stewart's retired, Seve was killed, Tyrrell needed drivers, Schechter was already signed, and then Depay was brought in alongside. Um, uh, at, but he, you know, he rose to the challenge. He took two wins. Um, and he went to the season finale with an outside shot of the title. Okay, he didn't come off, but if you think that's really his first proper championship in F1, that's you know that's a <laughs> that's pretty impressive. He, he had the, he had the edge over Depaye in '75, and he won his home Grand Prix. But really, Tyrrell were falling away quite quickly then. Perhaps they were missing you know the development ex- you know, and experience of, of of Jackie Stewart at that point. Um, I don't know whether you can really blame Schechter for that, given his inexperience. Um, he didn't like the P34 as much as Depay. He was slower, but on the one day when the car was, you know, the car to have, he was the one that put it on pole and won the race at Anderstorp. Um, and you think, you know, he's delivering at the right time. I read some interesting comments from Ken Tyrrell when Schechter announced that he was moving to Wolf for 77, which is a start-up operation. You know, Ken was a little bit barbed about it and saying, oh, you know, Schechter didn't dominate Depay as much as he should have done given Depay's lack of experience. But actually, when they mm-hmm. started together, Depay had two world championships and Schechter had five. So it's hardly a chasm. Um, <laughs> uh, I thought that was perhaps said you said more about the tension within the team. So I don't think he gelled with Tyrrell, perhaps like some drivers on this list did. Um, he he didn't like Derek Gardner's P34, but he outqualified Depay 26-19 across their three seasons together. He outscored him quite comfortably, 114 to 65. He even scored more points in the six wheeler, despite the fact he didn't like it. So it's one of those instances with well, maybe he wasn't taken into the bosom of the family in quite the way that other drivers were, but he he still delivered more than anyone else. Uh, in Tyrrell history with the exception of number one who could we possibly be talking about um, <laughs> and also a nice point you know, uh, you know I think uh, Mike Kettlewell commented that you know had Schechter joined Ferrari instead of Tyrrell he'd have won the world championship and he said that um, in about 76 at the end of 1976 well of course Schechter after he was at Wolf did go and join Ferrari and did win a world championship and I suspect probably a bit of the learning had been done at Tyrrell so I think it, ultimately I think that they sort of did they did do each other a favour uh, in the end, um, even if perhaps they weren't you know, best of buddies uh, come the end of 1976. So in second place then, Stefan, he's obviously never going to be the number one on this list, but is he head and shoulders enough for you above 
places like in third place Francois Severe and Depayet? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I you know I agree pretty much with everything that, that Kev said. Um, surprisingly, um, but um, yeah, I, th- I think it was very much sort of a, it was his it was his learning years, wasn't it, in Formula One that allowed him to mature and. Um, you know, Kev obviously mentioned the the Silverstone crash, and I think he very much came in with a a reputation into Formula One as a driver who would be quite erratic and you know generally cause quite a few collisions. Which obviously at that you know in that particular era was you know you you threatened you know your life was on the line very much more than it is today. Um, I mean, I always think back to um, when he's you know won at Ferrari in 1979, and you know Villeneuve would try and be the fastest driver over every lap, whereas you know, Jody would think, well, that's fine, you do that. I'm just going to sort of accumulate these points. And I think he probably learnt quite a lot of that, you know, during, during his days at, at Tyrrell. Um, you know, and he got, you know, a, a number of wins. Um, as, we, you know, Kev had mentioned, the P34, the, you know, the six-wheeler, he didn't gel with it. But then is it perhaps surprising when it's this, you know, a new a new car that, and a new concept that, you know, had never sort of been tried before and, you know, you're learning from weekend to weekend what works and what doesn't work. So, um, but even, you know, with that said, you know, he still got the win, you know, the one win for the car. He was in the right place at the right time, you know, still beat Depaye fair and square that day. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, I, th- I think very much, you know, worthy of the number two slot. Um, it doesn't surprise me that he didn't quite get on with, with Ken Tyrrell. I mean, he, he always seems quite an abrasive character. Jody Schecht, I don't know whether that's that's fair or not, but um, I think they could both be abrasive, which was perhaps well, yeah. uh, both very frank in the exchange of their views, but which is probably you know, but that that also you need to do that, don't you? And the fact that he became team leader so quickly to be able to you know to do that, you know, it's um, it's, it might be interesting to see how you'd have compared to Sever actually. Uh, if they had been teammates, uh, it'd been interesting to see how that could have played out. Shall we get on to number one and have a good long chat about the person at the top? Well, Schechter may have left to form a startup team. The similarities there is that the number one driver was also crucial in setting up Tyrrell, at least as a constructor in Formula One. But the similarities perhaps end there because whilst Schechter served his apprenticeship with Tyrrell, this man certainly did not. He was there from 70 to 73, started 39 times. He won 15 times, but he was 20 times on the podium. Uh, The only place that he could possibly be is number one. Jackie Stewart. Kev, you always say on these lists, the number you often start with number one because it picks itself and then the hard work comes further down. I mean, this required the, just no brain power. I think I probably <laughs> probably could have got my six-year-old to just kind of... Could, I mean, most significant because Tyrrell wouldn't have existed without him, as well as the, what I said earlier about the wanting the DFV over at the match of E12. You know, Ken Tyrrell roped, uh, roped Stuart into helping him get backing from... If Dunlop wanted to pull out and he helped use... Uh, Stuart to, to to keep them in and Elf backing and yeah you know, he basically created the team around Stuart even the 001 was was a sort of a short chassis partly for his own uh, because Jackie was so small I mean they had to make a slightly longer chassis for Sever um, but also Derek Garden knew that it, it, yeah he could make a twitchy agile car and, and Jackie would be good enough to make the most of it because um, obviously the, the twitchy cars are not necessarily the easiest the easiest to drive so I mean you know he's got more wins more poles more fastest laps two world titles the team exists basically because of him and this is and we're not even talking about when he won the world championship in a Tyrrell run Matra and 
uh, became the last person yeah. to win a World Championship Grand Prix in a privateer car with, with a Tyrrell Run March. So, uh, <laughs> oh, and, and what was the, what was the 001 like as a car? As, they, as it hit the it ground, was quite con- well. It was quite conventional, other than it was obviously it had quite a short wheelbase. It was very quick straight away, but it was unreliable. I mean, Stuart was on pole for the Canadian and US Grand Prix, um, and 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 again he he. There were times when the car had problems, and he could have just fallen back on the seven hundred one. But he just knew that yeah, this was the car to this was the car that, the, that was the future really, and all that work paid off with the 003 And actually, that family of cars they are almost chassis numbers rather than different cars. Yeah, they're kind of evolutions of each other. Um, and he took six wins. I mean, in, in the French Grand Prix in nineteen seventy one, by that point everyone thought you need to have a V or twelve cylinder, a Ferrari, a BRM, Matra, whatever at fast circuits. Remember, Paul Ricard used to have the long Mistral straight with no chicanes on like it's got now. And Stuart rocked up and and blew everyone away. I mean, he absolutely dominated the race such to such a degree that Ferrari didn't believe that it could possibly be a legitimate Cosworth DFV engine. Uh, but it was, and it was basically the aerodynamics of the car and the air intake above the engine that Derek Gardner had worked on. Uh, it was just team and driver working in working in harmony, really. Uh, and I think that Stuart was also able to flatter them at times. Yeah, when the car wasn't. Uh, you know, he's winning the Spanish Grand Prix when all the other cars are 12 cylinders. I think that that's a win by the driver. You know, he managed to win the Monaco Grand Prix with only the front brakes working. I think 006 in 1973 was, I think, not as quick as a load of 72 or a McLaren M23. I think probably only Jackie Stewart wins the world championship in that car. Uh, I think he's, he's un- for me, he's absolutely the best driver in the world when he decides to, uh, decides to retire. Um, so uh, and and he leaves a huge a huge hole at, at uh, Tyrrell, of course, when he does retire, which is exacerbated by Sever being killed as well. So you know they've lost both their established, you know, legend, if you like, and the up and coming heir to the throne, as Stefan said earlier. So yeah, I mean, for me, I finished the piece with saying I, I think that the Tyrrell Stewart combination should be thought of in a similar terms to Jim Clark at Lotus, Marcus Schumacher at Ferrari, Lewis Hamilton at Mercedes. Not in terms of longevity, of course, because more recently these eras last longer, but in terms of the defining combination of their era, uh, yeah, it was. If this was a very easy, very very easy number one. Well, it's nice to end on a on a point me and Kev both agree on. You know, the uh, I, I mean, you know, you, you yeah. just can't, you can't disagree. You know, it's um, yeah, very very much the number one. And um, as Kev said, you know, you can't think of Ken Terrell without thinking of Jackie Stewart. I think, you know, the two are just linked almost, aren't they? Terrell would not have been where it was without Jackie Stewart, and you know, Jackie Stewart perhaps wouldn't have had the career, you know, without Terrell. Um, you know, they just complemented each other. They obviously got on well, you know, outside the car, you know, as, as business partners, partners, I guess, to a certain extent. Um, you know, I think it says a lot the fact that, you know, Kev might be able to, to correct me, but I don't think Jackie probably ever looked to leave the team at any stage. I think, you know, he probably was like, you know, if there's problems, we can work around it. We can get on top of the car. Yeah, well, he, I mean, he did get obviously an offer, um at Ferrari earlier on in his career when he was still with with Tyrrell in F2 mm. but yeah when when Ken was saying that this is because Ken told hardly anyone about the the, the 001 project um, but Stuart had enough confidence you're right yeah in him to yeah because he'd have had offers from everywhere um, yeah especially after Jochen Rint was killed yeah Stuart was quite obviously the, the the number one driver in the world and but he trusted he trusted Tyrrell and the, and the people Ken was very good at getting the right people loyal 
very good at their particular job people around him like a lot of great leaders do they find people who know how to do their job and they let them get on with it or they enable them to do it um, but just to, to back up Stefan's point, yeah, I've, I've got. I'm holding Maurice Hamilton's book, um, autobiography. Uh, sorry, authorized biography, because he only got to write it after Ken died. Because Ken kept disagree, kept uh, mm. refusing to do an autobiography. So Maurice just wrote it after Ken died, because at the funeral, everyone went, "You should write a book." Um, and it's really, it is really good. I'd recommend it. But on the cover is Ken and a picture of Stuart in uh, in seventy one, and then on the back, it's a picture of the two of them together. Uh, and I think that kind of says it all, really. Tyrrell was in, in Formula 1 for 30 years, but it's those first five or six years really, that really forged the forged the legend. What is the... I don't know if you can answer this, Kev, but what was their relationship? There was 15 years between them. Was it more of a uh, an older brotherly relationship or more of a kind of father-son guiding light kind of relationship? How did they get on together? I think they, yeah, I don't know if it's a father-son thing. I think Stuart's probably a bit too much of a, already a bit too much of a sharp operator for that. But certainly, you know, in the, in the book, Stuart... Like an older brother. Yeah, kind of maybe sort of, maybe more yeah. akin to that. In that. Ken didn't tell Jackie how to drive a race. He just let him go with it. That was his, that was his sort of modus operandi, really. He trusted the drivers to get on with it. And obviously, Stuart had the ability in the way to read a race that he didn't... Rec- yeah, he just needed the basic information, you know, what's his lead and all the rest of it. And then, and yeah, so Ken wouldn't be throwing out slow and fast signs and all this stuff. He'd give him the information that, you know, the basic information that he needed. There were a couple of times, um, I think, uh, I think Nürburgring 68 was one, where... Um, uh, I think, and I think maybe Monza seventy after after Rint had had his big crash and Stuart knew it was bad, where there was an understanding or Ken had to sort of say you do need to go out when Jackie didn't want to, but I think Jackie knew that he was right and did it anyway because he trusted him. So there was definitely a mutual understanding and very rarely a, a disagreement. I don't think. I think there was a mutual respect as well, wasn't there? Um, you know, and I think yeah, Jack, absolutely. I think Jackie very much um, cared for the team. You know, he, he, you know, we we talk about Severe and you know, sort of, you know, Jackie Stewart basically approaching Ken Tyrrell and saying, you know, this guy's actually pretty good. You know, you should look to try and get him in the team and sort of nurturing him and putting him in a place to make sure that he was going to be able to to lead the team on. Obviously, that that didn't you know unfortunately happen. But I think as well, you know, just. On the accidents for Severe at, um, at Watkins Glen, you know, obviously Stuart didn't do what would have been his, his 100th race, but he did go back out in the car to basically confirm to the mechanics that it wasn't a fault with the car, it wasn't anything to do with them. And I think that, you know, it would have been so easy for him to think, well, you know, that, you know, my career's over, I don't want to go out and you know drive a few quick laps because what what's there to be gained from it but I think it shows his level of respect for Ken and the team that he decided that yes I'm gonna do it and put their minds at rest or it wasn't their fault that you know the 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 crash happened for Severe. Yeah absolutely The, the sort of professionalism and care for the team. I mean, actually, he did something similar, or different circumstances, because it wasn't the teammate. But you know, he was in tears after Rince accident in, in practice. You know, he knew it was bad, um, and he went out there and did. I think he did his quickest laps of the weekend and qualified second in a frankly mediocre, quite lively March seven hundred one with not much in the way of wings on it. Uh, and I think he, he, you know, he reckoned that was yeah you know, one of the one of the finest 
lapse of his life really to go out there and sort of show everyone you know he didn't just cruise around and it was again if I'm in the car I'm doing a professional job for for the team um so yeah I think I think yeah trust and respect probably uh sums it up sums it up well you know Stuart knew that Tyrrell would give him strong proper equipment and and Ken didn't ever question Stuart's ability when it came to getting behind the wheel I probably missed a trick there and not uh, comparing him to being Uncle Ken. Oh, um, I me- can't believe I think that's him. a very good point. Yeah. 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 So, that, as many knew him, so a much better relationship, <laughs> a, tr- a trusted uncle. Uh, well, that marks the end of our second series. Do check out our Tyrrell feature online, autosport.com, not just for breaking news, but for lovely, wonderful features uh, like this. And series three, it's coming. We just don't know when. Exactly, but it is on the way, right? It is. It is. I've got. A, I've got a short list uh, of all uh, of both topics and potential guests. Um, so we're going to broaden guests. it out a bit because we've done. I think we've done enough with the teams. Uh, as I said before, I do apologise to Benetton, Renault, Tolman, Alpine uh, fans because they have been. <laughs> they, it's just I, I'll come. I'll, I'll, I'll gird my loins and come back another day with that, perhaps. But uh, so now we're going to expand it out. Going to do things like. Uh, yeah, best uh, best drivers not to win a World Championship Grand Prix, best uh, non-title winners. Um, I've had some nice uh, uh, comments from people asking me about the pre-war thing we mentioned in the Series 1 of Mercedes, so mm-hmm. I have started some pre-war lists. So, yeah, things like that that are a bit more broad that cover different teams and drivers across certain eras and things. Um, so that could be quite fun. But, yeah, if you've, if you've got any others, I've had some nice nice suggestions. I, I can't um, I, I can't do them all, obviously, in each uh, series, but they are they – are, I've got a list of lists – uh, so if you'd like to add to that, do do please drop me a line, uh, uh, drop me an email on kevin.turner at autosport.com and I'll um, I'll add it to the uh, to the list of potential things to do. They do take a little while, so it might be you know series four, five, or six, but um, <laughs> I, I, it'll end there, be there. Some I'm committing to too many series. Let's do one at a time. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to series two. I think it should be quite good fun. Absolutely. Well, that marks the end of our, our podcast today, our second series of our Top 10s feature. We're looking forward to coming back uh, at some point in the future. Thank you very much, as always, for listening to the Autosport podcast, and we'll catch you on the next one. Stop. Stop. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.